and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. There used to be a big fault line between green campaigners, between people who rejected nuclear power, one word, Chernobyl, and people who said, I don't really like it, but it's the only way to meet people's energy needs without burning fossil fuels. There's a new fault line now, and it's called HS2. For some, it's a railway, and railways get traffic off roads. For others, it's a crazy expensive project that will only speed up journeys by a few minutes and will destroy some beautiful woodland around the Chilterns. With me to talk about that today is a guy who comes recommended by Bunker listeners. His name is Phil Sturgeon, and among other things, he plants trees. Phil, welcome to the Bunker. Hey, thanks for having me on. Tell us about your job. So I work for a charity, or I'm a trustee of a charity called Protect Earth. Um, We plant a bunch of trees all over the UK. We've done um, nearly 6,000 this year. We do 100,000 this coming winter. Basically, we work with landowners to try and help them find their way through the confusing world of grants and subsidies and and all these different funding sources and, and permissions and all the complicated stuff like that. We help them figure it all out so that we can get more trees in the ground. Um, and we're working on buying our own land. We're going to get, hopefully, if it works out, we're going to get 30 hectares in South Wales that we can fill full of trees and meadows and lovely things. Before we talk about reforestation and putting woodland back there, I want to talk a bit about what England was like before we removed lots of the trees. When we think about England, say, a few thousand years ago, how much of it was actually covered by forest? People have been here a long time and we've been cutting down trees a long time. Um, 5,000 years ago, it was like 75% woodland. You know, even a thousand years ago, it's already down to 15%. So we, we've really kind of just gutted our forests for, for all sorts of stuff like, you know, housing and, and coal. And we had a huge navy at one point. So that came from somewhere. <laughs> we've been cutting down a lot of trees. That surprised me a bit because I somehow assumed that with there not being that many people in Britain, that there would still be a lot of woodland. But I was wrong about that. And what sort of forest would that have been? Which species of tree? Yeah, so stuff native to Britain, kind of oak, alder, elder, which is a different thing. (laughs) Haze, ash, uh, elm, all sorts of maples, poplar, which is no longer able to naturally regenerate, which sucks. Um, And a bunch of different stuff like willow and hazel. Why can't poplar naturally regenerate anymore? Uh, as far as I know, just the, the temperature's all wrong. Like climate change is leading to a lot of tr- a lot of certain types of trees not being able to grow in areas that they, they would normally grow. So by the time William the Conqueror arrived and introduced something called forest law, which was basically there to protect game like deer so that he and his friends could hunt it, only <laughs> about 15% of the land was covered by woodland. Where were the big forests then that still remained? We still had huge chunks of uh, temperate forest all over the place. Things like Dartmoor and Exmoor, which we now think of as just totally barren. Epping was an epic forest. Forest of Dean, um, Forest of Sherwood. They were all kind of still relatively big chunks. Even the New Forest, which was kind of designated New Forest by uh, William the Conqueror around that time, was pretty sizable and went all the way from like Southampton to, you know, bits of Wiltshire. And then in 1919, the government created the Forestry Commission. Tell us about that. What was it for, essentially? Due to already having a thousand years of us cutting everything down for, for naval ships and coal mines and all this other stuff, um, and, and especially the First World War, like we couldn't really bring timber in from outside. We've always been importing timber. We still import like 80% of our timber from other countries, China and Europe and stuff. Um, so timber is really important, and we just didn't have the forests to sustain it anymore. Around about 1919, we got down to 5%. So that's even less than when William the Conqueror was around. Um, so we're down to like 5% 
woodland cover, whether that's, you know, timber forests or kind of conservation forests, whatever, there was only 5% left. And so the goal was to make sure we had a decent supply of, of timber for building stuff throughout the wars. And, and they have slowly managed to creep it back up so that in England, we're now back to 10%. So it took us 100 years to get from 5% to 10%, which is not very impressive. <laughs> when you look at, um, you know, the average in Europe is like 37%. I think the, the second worst, we're the worst in Europe. The worst is 25%. And then like Finland is like 72% forest cover. So we've got a lot of catching up to do. But the Forestry Commission didn't always do a lot for biodiversity. Tell us why that didn't happen. Yeah, so the Forestry Commission was set up to mostly try and secure our timber supply. Back in 1919, they didn't, you know, no one knew about the climate crisis. And and so they were just focused on securing a timber supply so we could keep on building stuff uh, in the war. So England um, is only 10% forested. Uh, the UK on average is 13% because Scotland's crushing it up at 19. The rest of Europe is on like 25 to 72% somewhere. And, and they have a mixture of kind of nice biodiverse natural areas, conservation areas, huge national parks. And then they also have kind of monocrop timber plantations where they're getting their wood. And that's where we import a lot of our wood from is from the rest of Europe. They were previously primarily focused around timber supply. That has changed a bit now. You do see the occasional kind of BBC news article that's going on about, oh, sometimes planting trees is bad. And when you dig in, that's because the Forestry Commission approved a project to be planted on a peat bog, but they have this definition of like what's an okay peat bog to plant in and what's not, and maybe that should change. But generally speaking, they're there to, to make sure people aren't doing terrible things. And now when you're trying to plant a woodland over a certain size, over two to four hectares, depending on where you are, you actually have to get permission from the Forestry Commission. It's kind of like getting uh, planning permission for a house. You have to say like, hello, sir, I would like to make a woodland, please. <laughs> it's going to be this size and it's going to have these trees. And they make sure that it's a certain percentage of native and it's not all the same tree. And you have to go through a lot of these hoops, which will ensure a better outcome for nature and biodiversity than just ramming it full of sicker spruce or whatever. How much difference can tree planting actually make to net zero, to cutting carbon emissions? Depending on who you talk to, it can do quite a lot. Project Drawdown have it listed as between 20 and 2050. It could suck down about 30 gigatons of CO2, which is twice the potential impact that electric cars would have. So it really can be quite a big solution. Unfortunately, it's, it's not really the silver bullet. A lot of people seem to think it is. I think the reason that a lot of people think that planting trees is you know, one of the most important things is it, it's the main thing that kind of the left and the right both agree on. In America, like you know, Republicans and Democrats both agree that you should plant a lot of trees. It's just Republicans think that's the only thing they need to do. And the Democrats think it's one of a uh, hundred things that we need to do. So kind of everyone agrees on at least this one thing, like we do need to do this part, but what else? So last autumn, the government put out what it called the 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. <laughs> I was writing about this recently, and there hasn't been a lot of follow-up and detail. And I think businesses and are getting quite impatient trying to find out what this green industrial revolution is going to look like. But there was something called the England Tree Strategy. Tell us about what the England Tree Strategy is. It's not much. Um, it, it's basically about expanding, improving uh, and protecting uh, woodlands. So we want to make more and, and protect as much of what we've got as we can. And it kind of sets up some some goals. Um, so one of their goals is to try and get the tree cover from 10% to 12% by 2050, which is kind of pathetic. <laughs> like that's not much. And it would mean planting 30,000 hectares um, a year by 2025. And the concern there is that that's not a legally binding target. Like if we don't hit that goal, then 
yeah, well, we tried, I guess. And also in the past, we've we've had targets of 5,000 uh, hectares in 2019, and we only planted 1,400 of that. So we were like, yeah, we only did 20% of our targets when the target was 5,000. Suddenly the target's going to be 30,000. Don't really know if that's particularly viable, if it's not a legally binding target. A lot of people basically say the England tree strategy doesn't go far enough. We need to be, you know, doubling our woodland. We need to get up to like 26% UK wide so that we can absorb a whole bunch more carbon emissions and not just squeak it up by 2%. But are there big obstacles to that? Because we know this is a fairly densely packed country in population terms, certainly in the southeast, although arguably not in other parts of it. Where would big tree planting, where is there the potential for big tree planting uh, where it wouldn't interfere with, for example, the need for new housing? Absolutely. Um, so currently the UK is 76% agricultural land. It's really difficult because you can't just say, oh, we don't need agriculture. I mean, we need food, right? We need to be producing a lot more food now that we've kind of isolated ourselves from our nearest trading partners. The way in which we farm and the types of thing we farm need to change for the sake of the environment anyway. You know, a huge amount of our land is used to grow cows and feed cows. And one of the farms that I work on, was it 400 acres of farmland? And that is entirely to support one herd of dairy cows. And all they're doing is making ice cream. And that's not even the entirety of their land. So we've got 400 400 acres being used just to make some ice cream. If we eat less ice cream, we could plant 400 acres of trees, right? But as well as kind of taking up contiguous blocks like taking up entire fields and planning that whole thing and saying hey there farmer we're taking this field back because you know agriculture is bad and you need to stop farming so much we can work with those landowners to plant trees in sensible ways so we can plant degraded farmland that's mostly currently just used for sheep grazing because the subsidies kind of push you towards leaving that land mostly alone and putting some sheep up there you get a bit of money for not really doing any work Um, i mean (laughs) for not doing a lot of work right sheep are tricky but Um, You can kind of let sheep roam mostly and you'll get cash for that. And so the grants kind of keep people doing that sort of thing. And slowly we're starting to see the grants focus more towards, well, if you plant a bunch of trees, you could actually make an income. If you use the Woodland Carbon Code, leave these trees alone for 50 years, we can work out how much carbon that's going to absorb. And, and, you know, we can fund that with corporate sponsorships and things like that. And so basically working with landowners to figure out ways to get forests on their land, which is beneficial for everyone. And working with concepts like agroforestry, where planting rows of trees through the middle of crops, planting shelter belts along the edges to reduce wind and soil erosion. Um, and to like improve the the temperature of the field, which apparently if there's cows in the field, if you reduce the, the wind chill on those cows with planting shelter belts, it improves their mental health. <laughs> and it also stops them shivering so much, which means you don't need to feed them as much, which means there's fewer emissions and fewer costs related with those cows. But if we also eat less meat, then we don't need as many fields full of cows or crops supporting those cows. So there's kind of a holistic approach to reducing it. I had no idea that you could be more efficient by keeping the cows warmer, but it does make sense when you say that. So, I mean, but for farmers, uh, they it is a big, to plant a forest, it's not like the normal agricultural cycle with crop rotation and so on, where you can change use yeah. fairly easily. Are they sometimes reluctant to think about forests because it is such a long-term investment and it ha- it's going to be there after they die? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean... There's been a lot of instability around around Brexit where people weren't sure how the how the grants and subsidies were going to change. And that's that's mostly why 2019 had such a pathetic uh, amount of reforestation done, like 20 percent of our targets were because people didn't know what the grants were going to be. And so there's been a lot of kind of hesitance around that. And and now that the 
the Woodland Carbon Code has been helping out a lot. It's still this really kind of confusing, hard to understand, only really works if you're doing it on a big scale kind of thing. But there are a growing number of people who understand it. And right now it's pricing carbon at about £15 a tonne. And every acre could theoretically produce 200 tonnes of CO2 over 50 years. Those are the numbers that they work with. And basically now planting a woodland is an investment because that price per tonne of carbon is only going to go up over time. So right now, if you do the math around £15 a tonne, the math looks okay. And then assuming that rises a lot, you could be making a fair bit of money by by planting trees. So it's starting to become more viable to create woodland. It's always been better for the farm to, to have more trees around your farm. So agroforestry and silvopastures, things like that are starting to become more popular because you can still you can plant a bunch of trees in, in a field and still have cows in there once those trees are mature you can have you know sheep grazing once they've grown up uh, and like planting strips of trees in with your crops will you know like i said all the wind benefits and and all of the um having more birds around they'll eat more pests uh, more, more more of the insects that cause damage so you don't need to buy as much like insecticide there's all these amazing benefits to having more trees on the farm it's just you know a hundred years of the more industrial agricultural mindset of remove every hedgerow, remove every tree, get every square inch producible has led to this situation we're in now where we just kind of remove all the nature and just focus on the the yield. But really increasing trees will increase your yield. And that's, that's the mindset that's starting to change now. Let's talk about HS2 now. How much woodland is actually being chopped down to make way for HS2? Depends who you talk to. Some people say it's the biggest amount of deforestation since Second World War or something. There's a lot of wild numbers going around um, that are completely inaccurate. The number most commonly quoted, like you'll hear 108 woodlands are being threatened. And of course, that to a lot of people means 108 woodlands are being cut down. That's not true at all. Uh, And like, what does threatened mean? And what is a woodland? Threatened by the Woodland Trust definition means the railway goes within one kilometre of that woodland it doesn't mean it's being cut down or disrupted in any way it's just going to be within one kilometer and so people say well there's still going to be noise damage most of those woodlands already have several roads going through them and that has you know noise pollution but hs2 is is cutting itself into the ground the reason for those those dig cuts uh, those big cuts are because people were concerned about noise pollution and you dig it into the ground a little bit and the noise goes up so that won't really affect the woodlands nearby And again, like how big is a woodland? Some of those woodlands that are being directly cut are as small as 0.1 hectares, which is tiny. It's like, (laughs) so basically the the kind of numbers are exaggerated and and confused a lot. um, And they, you know, elicit this emotional, really emotional response. Uh, But the the actual amount of ancient woodland being removed is 0.01% of the UK's ancient woodland, which depending on the definition of ancient woodland you're using, there's a few different definitions, but it's either between 30 hectares or 60 hectares of ancient woodland in total is being removed. And is HDS2 trying to compensate in any way by replanting and so on? Yeah, they're actually doing quite a lot. I I wanted to go and see what they're doing. And I've been to a couple of reforestation sites and and it looks pretty legit. It looks like the reforestation work I do, to be honest. I think there's a sense that they haven't been trying. They're just plowing straight through ancient woodland, not really caring, not really thinking about it. There were a lot of different routes planned and they've kind of gone with the least impact possible as far as I can tell, right? They've done a few tunnels to try and avoid a couple of ancient woodlands that otherwise would have been cut and that increases emissions and it increases costs. And then people complain about the increased emissions and the increased costs. But if they didn't do that, they'd complain about the extra woodland. So there's kind of a no-win situation there. But yeah, they are planting 650 hectares of woodland. There's uh, They set up the HS2 
woodland fund, which has got you know millions of pounds for for farmers along the route near the route, not even being directly impacted. They can claim those funds to plant more trees. So it's like the usual grants, but even better. And so they're planting a bunch of trees. They are translocating soil, which is an interesting thing. It is honestly a bit of an experiment. There hasn't been a mass translocation of, of soil before. Um, but from the sites I've seen, like the uh, the bluebells were already coming back from that soil. Some of the trees they've moved are, are clearly showing signs of growth again. There was that one uh, concern about the 259-year-old Covington tree that was being cut down, even though it's a pear tree and they usually only live for 250 years. <laughs> they they took a bunch of cuttings from that and and planted them all over the place. And those cuttings are growing perfectly happy. So that, that one old, soon-to-be-dead tree was turned into 23 new trees. So there's a lot of kind of large-scale and small-scale uh, mitigation being done by HS2. We hear complaints, though, about trees being planted too close together and in plastic tubes, maybe dying of drought because they're planted in the wrong places. How much of that do you think is true? Yeah, it's interesting. Basically, looking at the photographs, especially the photographs that are taken from the edge of the edge of a walkway, someone's like walked up to a fence and they can see these trees really close together. What they're looking at there is an edge mix that's like hawthorn and and sometimes you know field maple and, and dogwood and all these kind of bushy, shrubby trees. You plant those around the edge. And that provides a bit of protection to the to the inner chunk of woodland as it grows. But even in in the inside of the woodland, you basically it's called overstocking. You plant more trees than you want, knowing that some will die, and that's from things like drought, deer, moles, voles, shrews, all sorts of animals eat them. Um, there's pests. Sometimes they just don't take. There's a lot of things that can kill those saplings, and so. You, you start off with overstocking, putting them too close together. Like a good survival rate might be 80%. Uh, that's like a really good survival rate. So if, you know, 20% of them die, then the woodland is, is obviously thinner. If enough of them die, then you don't have to thin as many later. <laughs> because once the trees get to maturity, you need to thin them out a little bit anyway. You have to take some of them down so the rest of them can grow big and strong. And so it's all about, it's kind of a numbers game. If you, you know, you overstock at first, some of them will die. And then you restock if too many die and you thin if not enough have died, and then you have a woodland. Because the alternative is you plant exactly the right amount that you would like to be in your woodland, and then a bunch of them die, and you just have a field with some trees in it, not actually a woodland. Um, and I, I think most people don't understand things like that. Like they've never looked into survival rates or or anything else, but those are just kind of standard forestry things. No, it's actually like when you're planting seed, seeds, isn't it? Yeah. It's the same principle when you thin them out. Exactly. Yeah, but sometimes though people feel as though protecting trees, almost on an individual level, is the only way that they can preserve the environment around them. And it becomes almost the expression of their concern and their love for the environment. Yeah. What would you say to these people? I'd say I completely understand. Um, like I've, I've visited some of these sites and I have seen, you know, the, the bulldozed bit and it is like emotional and gut wrenching. And I've seen videos of trees being cut down, not just HS2, but all over the place. Um, and, and they are always strong feelings and I, and I understand them. Like I'm from East Bristol and most of the countryside that I loved is a dual carriageway now. <laughs> and what isn't is a housing estate and a supermarket and a tennis court and just all the, you know, unnecessary building so i i get exactly how that feels but it's kind of there are two mindsets to this there's the conservationist and the environmentalist both will say they honestly care about the environment and nature and they, they do there's just a different way of thinking about it and the conservationist is cutting that down's bad so don't cut it down we, we need to like leave the chainsaws out of this and then everything will somehow be fine and their priority is just defense and the environmentalist is looking at the the larger picture like, like systems thinking you know like holistic thinking and and is aware that 
there's things that we have to do in order to save the environment and the entire planet and that woodland by reducing emissions overall. And so I think the basic problem is that in this country specifically, we've we've lost most of our woodland already, and now we're down to scraps. And we're really scared about losing 0.01% of the scraps that we have left because there's hardly anything around. You know, we're worrying about 30 to 60 hectares of woodland being cut down and 10 to 15 million hectares a year are lost of forests around the entire world, right? We're losing 10 to 15 million and we're worried about 30 to 60. And that comes from deforestation for beef and soy and biofuels because, you know, people want to do jet zero and so you have to deforest huge amounts of land to plant monocrop trees to get biofuel. And then drought, storms, fires, disease, bark beetles, general attrition of, you know, climate change, meaning that natural regeneration isn't happening. So new saplings aren't taking over from old trees as they naturally die off. And we're getting crazy weather coming through, which is like, uh, in the Tatras Mountains are a great example. I cycled through there. The entire mountain range was devastated by 200 kilometer winds and they lost like 13,000 hectares to storms. And then bark beetles just exploded in the in the dead trees and then fires were whipping through. Um, so they lost everything. And that's just climate change. And so the conservationist is saying deforestation is bad. It is. Cutting down these trees is sad. It is. Therefore, if we leave them alone, we'll be fine. But we won't. We're going to just keep on creating more and more and more emissions until, you know, more of these severe weather situations happen in the UK. We've been pretty lucky so far um, that we haven't had as many of these, you know, huge, huge storms. We're not having gigafires like California, where literally a million acres are, are, are burning down. But all of those things will start to happen soon. And, and we need to get our emissions down drastically. What's your favourite woodland in Britain? Um... <laughs> A smaller, less known one. I'm from near Bristol and Bath, and there's a beautiful woodland called Durham Woods just next to Durham Park. Um, it's one that I'm I'm working on restoring with my charity because it's uh, what is it, sixty acre ancient woodland that's just dying off, and and without intervention, it's it's not going to be there very much longer. So that's the one I spend a lot of time in, and it's really beautiful. But yeah, I want to go check out the new forest. They've got loads of uh, uh, bike packing routes, and I want to go ride my bike around there. And how about tree? Because we have to ask you about trees. <laughs> What's your favourite tree? Uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but English oak is just a classic, traditional, uh, supports like a thousand species just by itself. It's slow growing, but sequesters the most CO2 of, of, of any of our native trees. And it looks pretty cool as well. <laughs> like a, a 400 year old, old oak just looks bonkers like if you've seen the ones that are completely just hollow and gnarled and just you don't understand how it's still alive but every year it throws up shoots and leaves and you're like i thought you were dead (laughs) phil thanks so much for joining us that was fascinating yeah thanks for having me on i'm ros taylor thanks for listening don't forget to follow us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and you can support the show on patreon too we love it if you did search patreon bunker podcast to find out how join us next time for another bunker daily The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>